Pastor Xavier Reese and the importance of following God's Word. It's interesting how we always try to figure out God's ways when the scriptures tell us His ways and His thoughts are not like ours. The Bible says that everything in the Old Testament was written for admonition, for our learning, not just for us to criticize or to ridicule or to laugh at these people because we fall short in the very same way. Why? Because we don't take these records as applicable to us. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Today, Pastor Xavier takes us to the record books of the Old Testament to show us the simple truth that no matter what, God is sovereignly in control. Have your Bible ready for today's intriguing first look into the book of First Chronicles. Sometimes we look at Chronicles as being a repetition of Kings and Samuel, but it isn't. Remember that Chronicles is written after the fact. Samuel and Kings were written as history of the fact. And so really in Chronicles we get a divine perspective, a different little twist. Remember when Daniel was um, in Shushan the palace that King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he couldn't remember it and he saw it as a great image 90 feet high. Daniel came in and says these are the kingdoms of the world and he says you are the head of gold, you will be superseded by the Medo-Persian Empire, the arms of silver, they'll be superseded by the Grecian Empire, the belly of brass, it will be superseded by the Roman Empire, the legs of iron. The last empire to rule upon the earth is a ten-nation confederacy representative of the ten toes, and they would have a relation to the old Roman Empire, and they would be mixed with clay, a type of democracy, but iron and clay do not mix. Now, from the human perspective, Nebuchadnezzar saw the empires of the world, and he saw himself as the strongest, mighty, powerful. Later on, when God gave the very same dream, he gave it from his perspective as beast, as animals. What a difference it is depending whether man sees it or God sees it. And so Chronicles is really a divine perspective, a record of God intervening into man's history, into men's affairs, to work out his purposes, his will, in spite of what goes on. And so it's important that as we read, we understand this. Now, the name Chronicles, or the title here, was given by Jerome in the 4th century. It's not in the original Hebrew canon. The Hebrew canon really has First and Second Chronicles as one book, and they are called journals or words of days. One man has called it a divine diary. Now, Chronicles in the Hebrew canon appears at the end of the canon. We have it with our historical books. The Hebrew canon has it at the end of its canon in the section what is called as the writings. The Greek translators called Chronicles the omissions seen 
them as supplements to the book of Kings. But though we can get some supplementary material, that was not the purpose for writing Chronicles. But the fact that it is God's divine perspective, because it is written after the historical fact, after the captivity. The authorship of Chronicles is usually attributed to Ezra, maybe perhaps even Nehemiah. Traditionally, that's what's accepted. The mindset of the people at the time when Chronicles was written was a time when the people of God, Israel, were very much discouraged and disillusioned about the Davidic covenant. They even came to the point to think that it was not a literal covenant and that it wasn't going to take place. They had lost hope in the covenant God had made with David. And so, really, Chronicles serves as an exhortation or an encouragement to God's faithfulness. Faithfulness to keep his word, to bless, and also to curse. Because they had just come out of captivity, as God had told them, that they would go into captivity if they disobeyed the covenant of God. Commentators feel that there are two purposes for the writings of Chronicles. One is to give a divine perspective from Adam to the captivity, because he begins in verse 1 with Adam. Secondly, to remind Israel and future generations of the centrality of God in the midst of his people. God is always in the midst of his people. Sometimes it may look very gloom, very dark, but God is always present. God cannot deny himself, therefore he cannot deny his people. And so you have the concept of the people of God. It begins in the Old Testament and it goes into the New Testament. Peter says, we are the people of God. Those with whom he has made a covenant. We're reading the old covenant. That's what testament means. And we the church are the new covenant. The new testament. So let's get into it. Chapter 1. We get the families of Adam. Seth. All the way to Abraham. In the first 28 verses it says Adam, Seth, and Enoch. Canaan. Mahaliel. Jared. Enoch. Methuselah. Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japhat. Here we get Noah as a key person. We get Adam. We get Seth. The godly line. God is always tracing his godly genealogy. Those who are faithful to him. Verse 24 through 28, we get the line of Shem there all the way to Abraham, which really is the place where God began to call out a people for himself through Abraham. Remember, Abraham belonged to a pagan culture. Often people do not understand this or even know this, and they think that Abraham was just a godly man all the time. God called him out in Genesis 12, and Joshua chapter 24 tells us that his parents were idolaters. They worship other gods on the other side. And so Abraham is a key person because he is the father of faith. He is the friend of God. He is the one who God promised that his heir would be through him and ultimately end up in the Messiah. And so he becomes a very key figure through the Old Testament 
as well as the New Testament. Paul uses him very much in the book of Romans to really show the Jews that they are guilty before God, to show that the Gentiles were also included in the Abrahamic covenant. All the nations of the earth will be blessed and you. He is used throughout the New Testament. And so he becomes a very key figure to us. Now, verse 29 and 31, we get the families of Ishmael. Ishmael was the carnal product of Abraham's impatience. I hope that you don't produce a lot of Ishmaels in your life. They will add to your own hurt. Wait upon God. Don't try to figure God out or to get ahead of him. We can add metal to our own hurt. And, um, you know, sometimes we get help from our friends. Abraham said, uh, well, Sarah, what do you think? And Sarah says, well, you know, I'm old, you're old, and there's nothing going to come out of this dead womb. And sure enough, you can't get me pregnant. God must mean that you must go into my concubine or into my um, handmaiden, Hagar. It's interesting how we always try to figure out God's ways when the scriptures tell us his ways and his thoughts are not like ours. <laughs> The Bible says that everything in the Old Testament was written for admonition, for our learning, not just for us to criticize or to, or to ridicule or to laugh at these people because we fall short in the very same way. Why? Because we don't take these records as applicable to us. And so Paul uses Ishmael and Isaac as the two covenants as he writes the book of Galatians that Ishmael could have no part of the promise, for it was fulfilled in Isaac, the one that was according to the promise of God. And so it's better to wait on the promises of God than to go out and fulfill what you feel God owes you. In verse 34 to 37, we get the family of Isaac, and Abraham begot Isaac. The sons of Isaac were Esau and Israel or Jacob, and we get that genealogy. Verse 38 on down to 42, we get the sons of Seir. And now in verse 43, we get the kings of Edom, or actually the descendants of Esau. Now in chapter 2, we have the family of Israel. The 12 sons are going to be given to us. It says these were the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. Now, you will find different listings of the 12 tribes of Israel through the different listings that are found throughout the Bible. Why are they different? Because Israel really had 13 sons. Because remember that Joseph had two Reuben's birthright was forfeited because he defiled his father's bed. We'll pick that up as we go by. And therefore, it was given to Joseph. Levi was not given an inheritance. And therefore, the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, were received by Jacob as part of the tribes. And so you will find different orders and different listings of the tribes. Now, in verse 3, we get from Judah to David. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, 
These were born unto him by the daughters of Shua, the Canaanite, or the firstborn of Judah, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he killed him. Now, if you recall, in Genesis, Ur did a no-no, and um, he was supposed to uh, raise up seed unto his brother who God had wiped out or had died uh, because he did, was wicked before the Lord, but he did not want to go into his brother's wife, and the firstborn son would not bear his son according to the law later on that was given, but it would bear the son of his brother so that his seed or his descendants would not die off, but he didn't want to, whether that was the reason why or whether she was just a nag or whatever it was. But it says that he did not, and therefore God slew him. We go down a little further. We come to the lineage of David, verse 11. Nashon begot Selma, and Selma begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot who? David, verse 15. And so we're given the genealogy here of the lineage of the Messiah, tracing it from Adam through Seth, through the godly line to Abraham, down to David. Now in verse 18, we get Caleb, the family of Hezron. And remember Caleb, he was the, one of the two uh, good spies that went out to spy out the land, and 10 of them came back with an evil report, Two, Caleb and Joshua came back with a good report, and they entered the promised land and no one else. Now, in verse 25, we get the family of Jeremiel, the son of um, Jeremiel, it says, the firstborn of Hezron, and again, he names all kinds of descendants there. If you have a hard time sleeping tonight, start in verse 25. By the time you get down, before you get to 41, you'll be asleep. In verse 42, we get the family of Caleb, the descendants of Caleb, the brother of Jeremiel, and he names all them off too, and he follows them down. And then in verse 55, he says, And the families of the scribes who dwelt at Jabez were the uh, Tirathites and the Shimathites and the Succothites. They were really a lot of ites. And there were the Kenites who came from Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. Who is Rechab? Another key figure. Read Jeremiah 35. The Rechabites, they were not a people of God in terms of being of a Hebrew order, but they had been accepted into Israel. And when Israel had defiled herself by idols and pagans and pollution and abominations, God sent Jeremiah to the Rechabites and he says, go tell them to pour cups full of wine, pour them out, and then tell them to drink. Jeremiah did so. And the Rechabites saw what Jeremiah was doing. Jeremiah says, drink. He says, not so. We have made a covenant. We will not drink any strong wine. We will not dwell in houses that are built but in tents. We have made a covenant with God and we will not break it. Neither have our fathers and neither will our children. And God used the Rechabites as an illustration of faithfulness to rebuke Israel. They who were not originally the people of God were more faithful to the covenant they had made with God than the people of God. And therefore, God promised to them that there would never be lacking one Rechabite always being in the midst of the people of God. 
When you go home tonight, read the book of Nehemiah and see if you can find the Rechabite. I'll give you a hint. He's a faithful servant. You'll find him in the dung gate, not murmuring, not complaining, but being faithful to God, carrying out all the trash and the stinky rubbish of the city. Key figures here in Chronicles. In chapter 3 now, we get the family of David. Now these were the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The firstborn was Ammon by Abinoam, the Jezreelite, the second Daniel by Abigail, the Carmelite. Remember, she was the wife of Nabal, the fool. And the third is Absalom, the son of Micah. He's the one who tried to take the kingdom from him. He ended up hanging himself by his glory, his hair. And then the daughter of Telmai, the king of Jeshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggioth. And he goes on and gives some more. Verse 4 says that he reigned seven years and six months in Hebron, and then 33 years in Jerusalem, a total of 40 years. David was a mighty man, a tremendous man, a man that we can learn much from, both on the positive and both on the negative. We must understand that from every man and every woman, we are not only to learn from their strong points, but from their weak points, that we might not come to the very same place. And I like what God does, you know, when he paints his men in the Bible, he paints them, as they have said, with warts and all. He doesn't gloss over the failures of man. God, for not one minute is he under some delusions of grandeur, that we are perfect. He doesn't present us so. He doesn't believe us to be so. And neither does he agree that we are so. And so we must understand that when we read the scriptures, we are reading truth. We are reading the history of real people, such as ourselves. Verse 5 gives us those who were born to him in Jerusalem. David had many um, sons, many wives, and that was one of his problems. In verse 9, it says, These were all the sons of David, besides the sons of the concubines, and Tamar, their sister. Beginning verse 10, we get the family of Solomon. Solomon's sons was Rehoboam. Now, we're not going to follow this all the way down, but remember Rehoboam, when Solomon uh, had died and Rehoboam, his son, came to the throne, Jeroboam, who had been in Egypt, he had fled for his life, came back, and, and they came to Rehoboam, and they said, Listen, your father has hard-pressed the people, overtaxed them. They are overburdened. We need some relief. Give us the relief, and we will serve you. He says, give me some days, and I will take counsel. I will come back and give you my answer. He went to the old men, the wise men, who counseled his father. They said, listen, your, your father did overtax them. They do need a relief. Why don't you just um, take that advice, and uh, you'll be all right. But uh, he denied and refused the counsel of the older men, and he went to his young counselors. And they said, listen, if you give him an inch, they'll want a mile. Tell him that your father was but a little finger. You will be but a thigh to them. And so Rehoboam said that, and he declared his position. And um, Jeroboam says, well, if that's the case, then every man to his own tent. And what do we have to do with the house of David? And from that point on, the kingdom was divided. Northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes. The southern kingdom, two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. And it was never united again, and they all went to captivity. 
chapter 4 now, you get the sons of uh, or the family of Judah. And it goes through and gives them. But let's stop at verse 9. You have Jabez, it says, was more honorable than his brothers. And his mother called him Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. So his name means pain or grief. Now, that's not a very nice name to have, but we know that many times the children were named under the circumstance or situation that they were born under. But it is interesting to see and observe his prayer. He says, Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed, and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. The man who was called pain and grief was a man of prayer. How much pain and how much grief we can escape if we become people of prayer. How much pain we can bring to ourselves and how much grief we can bring to people around us when we are not people of prayer. But this man, first of all, prayed that God would bless him. Bless me, Lord. It speaks of grace. Because why should God bless me? Not because I'm good, but God blesses me because he's good. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good, Peter says, quoting the Psalms. So he's really petitioning for grace. Secondly, enlarge my territories. He is petitioning for growth. Are you asking that God loosen your cords and expand your borders? Or do you see yourself and your Christian life as a very limited area? You see yourself as just being saved and going to church and learning a little bit of information about the Bible and just saying your prayers at night and not bothering anybody and you're waiting for the rapture. Or are you praying, Lord, make me grow. Expand my borders. Give me vision not only to see far, but to see broad. Use me. And then he prayed for God's guidance. And your hand would be with me. You see, all the blessing and all the expansion of my borders will mean nothing if I don't have God going before me. I'll ruin it. I'll blow it. I'll use it for my own advantage. Because basically we are selfish and self-centered. And fourth of all, that you would keep me from evil. I like that. Jesus says the very same petition as he taught his disciples to pray. Keep me from those areas where I would be prone to enter in and add to my own herd. Keep me from those areas where the enemy would attack me and try to ensnare me. I like what David prays in the psalm. He says, Lord, keep me from presumptuous sin. Lord, put a door at my mouth. <laughs> Lord, guard my heart. And so this man that was called grieve and pain trusted completely in God. And rather than to live out the meaning of his name, he allowed God to change what he was to be natural 
to the supernatural. That should be our prayer. Pastor Xavier Reese and the power of the Word of God on our life, an ever-important simple truth drawn from our verse-by-verse study series. Now, you may be interested to know that today's presentation can be heard again anytime by way of the radio listings link at calvarychapelpasadena.com. But there's still much more to come of today's verse-by-verse study right here next time as well. But if you prefer your own personal copy on CD, we can make one available for only $4 upon request. The title to ask for is First Chronicles chapters 1-10. through 10. Once again, ask for the in-depth study titled First Chronicles chapters 1-10 through 10, when you write Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then join us for more Simple Truths next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com